Hello, listeners. Our podcast family got hit with a tragedy a few weeks ago, which shut us down for a bit. So we're bringing you this somewhat silly story titled The Curse Breaker. Thank you for all of your support, and we'll be back next week with your regularly scheduled programming. And if you were accepted tonight's, what would you like to study? Julian looked around the table at the panel of teachers and tried to speak with as much gravitas as a 15-year-old could. I'd like to study the history of the Sixth Migration. Perhaps look at what became of the people in the first system. One of the teachers coughed. She was the shortest one on the panel. She pushed out her already puffy lips in a frown that made her look like an enormous bug had bitten her. Combined with eyebrows bushy enough to go to war on her forehead, it made her brown eyes and her already small nose look even smaller. And why do you believe it is important to study the other systems, when we have had no contact with them in over five hundred years? That doesn't mean we'll never have contact with them again. And at the rate that we've been developing technology, it's possible that we'll be making contact within my lifetime. He tried to keep his voice even, as if they hadn't already read this in the three essays he'd been required to write for his application tonight's. The olive-skinned woman sitting across from Puffy Lips was just a hair taller, but looked completely opposite, with a potato-like nose too big for her otherwise sharp features, and perfectly plucked eyebrows that angled over large blue eyes, one of which was always looking to the far left, no matter what the other did. Julian tried not to look at her face when she said, And this... Sixth migration, as you call it, implies there was a fifth migration. And that would have been, what? A group of thieves trying to escape to the far reaches of the Zenith galaxy. What makes you so confident they survived that long? And even if they did, why are you so interested in their... civilization? She spoke the last word as if biting into a lemon. Julian patiently tried to explain his interest in the subject, without being able to explain his true draw to the Frist system, that his mother had, in fact, been born there. The rest of the interview went round in circles, and when the ten minutes had ended, he trudged home, not even bothering to use his natural wind magic to get there faster. Hey, how did it go? Julian's mother greeted him as soon as he stepped in the door. She was a sprightly woman, with skin so pale it shone like the white sand at a beach. Her eyes were oyster-pearl pink, and her hair, which fell nearly to her waist, was thick, like seaweed, and deep green in color with white highlights. Most people assumed she'd dyed her hair, and guessed that her strange colored eyes were due to some magical accident. Only Julian and his parents knew the real truth, that they were their natural colors, which they had been all her life. Julian's mother was a pixie a group of people who had once been magically changed on the far-off planet of a youth. Not only had their appearance changed, but they had powerful magical connections to the wind and the sea. They were also incredibly clever, perhaps too clever for their own good, because centuries ago the gods had cursed the pixies to only be able to use their magic in the service of others, and to agree to any request put upon them unless it endangers someone's life. 
It had been her curse that had allowed Julian's mother to transport herself to the Tristan solar system, at the sarcastic request of a rather foolish man. In Tristan, there were no sapient races other than humans. Though his mother's curse still plagued her, here she would not be captured or pressed into service by those who recognized her as a pixie. Julian had inherited her knack for weather magic, and though, unlike his mother, he could use it for his own purposes, he still felt compelled to agree to any request put to him by another person. The youth and pixies, his mother included, told stories about a person who would be able to one day break the curse, and Julian wanted nothing more than to find them so he could be normal. That, and go to Knight's Academy. Julian sat at the kitchen table, loosening first his black tie and then the top button of his red-orange shirt. He had secretly hoped that wearing school colors might give him a leg up in the interview. Not good. His mother sat across from him. At least you made it to the interview stage. The first interview. Even if, by some miracle, I get past this, there's still a test and a second interview. There was a reason students referred to the Knights Academy application process as the trials. Julian's mom laid a hand on his. Don't give up. She stood up again. I was thinking about making cookies. I don't know if you're interested in helping me with that. His mother's curse had made unusual request forms commonplace in Julian's home. He agreed to help his mother, of his own accord, and by the time Julian's father arrived home, the whole house was filled with the scintillating scent of cinnamon. For the next week, Julian let the night's interview slip from his mind and merely enjoyed his summer holiday from school. But when the letter arrived from Knights that said his progress through the application process had ended, the joy of the season vanished as quickly as someone transporting to another planet. The real annoyance was how the letter implied that he didn't have the focus and resilience to study at Knights. But maybe, if he applied again, after he had graduated from high school, when he had a better understanding of scientific study, he might succeed. Julian tossed the letter to the floor. Resilience. They didn't think he had enough stick-with-itness to prove why studying the sixth migration was important. What was he supposed to have told them? That he wanted to study a planet they didn't believe to be inhabited? Or races only he knew existed? He looked up at his wall where he had taped maps of each planet in the Tristan system. He dreamed of one day adding a map of his mother's planet to it, but that seemed impossible now. His eye fell on the map of Laralee the desert planet circling Tristan A. It was the first migration, the one to Laralee, that helped people figure out that different planets had different magical atmospheres. It was why some abilities were more common in different places, and why non-human races existed on his mother's planet, but not in Tristan. Laralee was a hostile planet. As during the sixth migration, the people who had first gone there had done so to escape, and despite the lack of water and vegetation, they had stayed resilience. If he was going to prove it anywhere, it was Laralee. Julian had not planet-hopped often. It was common in the Tristan system, but not usually for people with wind magic. He had practiced some, but only knew he could do it because his mom had done it once before. The key, he had read, was to focus on the Sinusure, an image of focus that grounded you in the place you were traveling to. It had to be specific to that location, or you risked going to the wrong place. That's why cities and landmarks often created specific images to assist travelers. Julian only knew of one on Laralee, however. It was along the Living River. A big sign near the campsite had a picture of a tree painted on it. 
The roots of the tree ran like the river itself, and the branches divided the land, directing visitors to the hills in the west, the desert in the north, and the grassland in the south. Julian concentrated on the sign, the blue sign, which stood on the north side of the river. On the south stood another in purple. He imagined himself in front of the sign, directed himself in front of it. Transportation magic was usually painless. The world around you rippled as if in a heat wave and then reappeared anew, though it did have effects on the body. It tended to make people dizzy, if only for a minute or two. But Julian did not have a natural gift for transportation magic. He had a natural gift for wind magic. For Julian, transporting to another planet felt like being lifted up by a tornado. He could feel himself hurling through space as wind whipped around his shirt and his hair. He kept his eyes shut tight, not that he could see much anyway. And then his feet hit the ground with such an impact that he lost his balance and dropped to his knees. He felt for a moment like he might throw up, but as a wet breeze hit his face, his head cleared and he realized he was at the campsite in front of the sign the bank of the river only a few feet in front of him. The campsite was empty, but for one other person. When Julian saw her, he thought for a moment that she was Puffy Lips from his interview, if Puffy Lips had shaved off all her hair. She met Julian's gaze and snorted. First time transporting, hmm? Something like that. He stayed on the ground for a moment longer, just to be sure he was not about to vomit, and then stood up and dusted himself off. Looking around the empty site, he realized his mistake. What had he planned to do exactly? Wander off into the desert for three days like some figure in a Calistian fairy tale? Expect one of the magic lords to save his life and then tell Knight's Academy that's why they should accept him? Julian knew he should go home before his parents realized he was gone, but he didn't think he was ready for that windstorm transport again. Worse, he wasn't sure if he had a true sinosure for his home. Sure, it was his, but... What was unique about it? Julian knelt at the edge of the river and splashed water onto his face. When had he been here last? About five years ago, with his parents. His mom liked to tour around the Tristan system. She liked learning about the planets that she hadn't grown up on, the history that was so old her people had forgotten about it. Julian wasn't interested in history back then. He had wanted to float down the river. The Living River hadn't earned its name only from life it gave to the surrounding area, but from the incredible rapids that it had. Somewhere down the river was their launch point, but he didn't know how far the boathouse was from here, or when the next group would be arriving. His father had agreed to take Julian on the river while his mother visited the Alhambra. Alhambra? Julian looked upriver. The Alhambra had been a palace in the hills, where the king could protect himself from invasions. Now it was a museum about the area and it was open every day of the week. Surely they would have a way to contact his parents. Julian set out west, toward the hills. When he reached the base, he saw a stone path cutting through the sparse purple vegetation. Though he knew the leaves here were a lavender color rather than the pale green on his home planet, it was still weird to see. Julian guessed the walk took about an hour, but the path was cut in a switchback that made the climb an easy one. Soon he saw the reddish-brown turrets of the Alhambra before him, Near the door, several sheep munched on the lavender grass. They were fluffier than the sheep on his own planet, so much so that even their heads resembled cotton balls. For a moment, he amused himself with the idea that they should be purple from the grass, but he supposed the sheep back home weren't green. They barely noticed him as he walked past and into the door. Clearly, they were used to visitors. 
The inside of the Alhambra was just as beautiful as the outside. Reddish clay brick with intricate geometric carvings. Scenic tapestries hung in several places, likely made from the wool of the same type of sheep he had seen outside. The tapestries were old, but the wooden counter was new. The woman standing behind it was so short that only her head peeked above. Julian secretly wondered if she was using a step stool. Can I help you? Eyes half closed, she seemed to be staring off to the side. He turned to look in the same direction, but saw nothing but the sign for the restrooms, also surely a new addition to the building. Can I help you? She asked again. This was followed by a loud pop, and Julian realized she was chewing gum. No one's here. It's a weekday, and the season's nearly over. Do you want to visit the museum or not? Actually, I was hoping to contact Whitefall. Whitefall? Yeah. Um, it's... it's not on this planet. Yeah, I know. Julian scratched his head, feeling a little like the sheep outside. I kind of came here by accident. I was hoping to get in touch with my parents. She rolled her eyes. New transportation mage, doesn't know what he's doing. Something like that. You got a comm number for your house? Julian gave it to her. She punched the number into the computer on her desk. What's your name? Julian. Julian Day. To Mr. and Mrs. Day from the Larley Alhambra. The clerk spoke as she typed. Your son, Julian, has accidentally transported himself to the Living River area of Larley. She looked him up and down. He is safe and unharmed. Julian scratched his head again. With a flourish, the clerk hit the send key. It's going to take at least ten minutes for that message to reach Whitefall. Thanks. Julian edged away to the bench near the bathrooms. The museum is free unless you want a tour. She flicked her hand to a group of three-foot-tall, bullet-shaped robots in the corner with coin slots. Thanks again. Julian bypassed the bench and headed into the next room. He wandered around for some time until a photograph of a shield caught his eye. The plaque on the wall next to it said, The Curse Breaker. Julian read on. It was an old story about the creation of the Dagger Islands. According to the story, the islands had once bridged the northern and southern continents of Laurelly. But long ago, a monster had threatened the people who lived on the bridge, creating for itself a giant cave of ice, and whenever someone fought it, it turned them into ice also, until a great hero rose up who bore that shield, which the monster's ice could not penetrate. The hero used the shield to melt the ice cave, creating an ocean of water, which buried the monster beneath it. But this did not kill the monster, which cried out from the depths. And this is how the bridge became the islands, and how the whaler's ocean got its name. The shield had once belonged to the museum, but was stolen not long after. Normally, Julian would have passed up the story as an old myth, but as he stared at the picture, he recognized something etched into it. It was a symbol that had equally been etched into his own brain after his attempts to apply to a school with the same symbol. It was the symbol of night, the collision god of fire. And while it was difficult to tell from the picture, the item looked like it might be made of collision metal. Julian knew from stories his mother told that the items of the Magic Lords existed. They were rare, and they were powerful. A page from an old book was framed on the other side, with a picture of the Temple to the Mithra, the gods whom the people of the Dagger Islands were known to worship. It was a long shot, but it was possible that the person who had stolen it had returned it to the temple. Perhaps this curse-breaker could fix his own curse. 
Julian peeked through the doorway from the museum to the lobby and waited until the board worker had turned her attention to the computer and dashed out the door. The sheep outside barely noticed him, except for one which gave him an angry meh before moving on to find another patch of purple scrub to eat. What? It's not like I'll get another chance later. He found the sun and roughly determined which direction was east. To get to the Dagger Islands, he didn't need to transport. Since he was on Laurelie, he could fly there. That was easy enough. Julian summoned a wind and allowed it to lift him into the air just as he heard the door of the Alhambra open. As he let the wind carry him south and east over the Astra Hills, he faintly heard the groan of the museum worker. He wanted to call to her that he would be back soon, but he didn't think she would hear him. He swept over the Opal Channel until it widened into the Whaler's Ocean. It was dusk when he spotted the Temple of the Mithra, a tower on a hill bearing an insignia with an open eye and two dragons. He decided it was a good thing he had flown. Walking up the hill would have been a pain. Julian's wind brought him to the bottom window. Whether or not people still worshipped at the temple, he knew it was a lighthouse, which meant someone lived here, and he guessed they were upstairs, turning on the light. Nevertheless, he hovered at the edge of the window, trying to keep out of sight of anyone who might be in there. But the room was empty but for a round rug on the ground and the main pieces of furniture, a bookshelf, and across from it a large plush chair with a metal box on one side and an iron pot on the other. He looked for the shield, but couldn't get a good angle from outside the window, so he climbed in, letting his wind go on its way. The room was warmer than he expected, considering the window didn't even have a shock shield to keep the weather out, or intruders. Or, at the very least, it wasn't turned on. But whoever lived there probably thought it unlikely someone would try to break into a lighthouse. The heat seemed to be coming from the metal box on the other side of the chair. Julian approached it, curious, making sure not to stub his toe on the iron pot, only to realize the pot was not next to the chair, but next to the bookcase. He looked to the window and tried to judge the angle of its view into the circular room. It must have been that the room looked smaller from the outside. He stepped up to the heating box and examined it. It was a tamblock, which people hadn't used since his grandparents had been his age. Wow! He breathed and stood up to look for the shield, only to find a sword a breath away from his neck. Seem to be in search of the wrong god, don't we? A woman's voice spoke from the staircase. As she stepped into the light, never moving the point of the sword, Julian saw that she was young and slender, not even as old as his mother, with a long black braid down her neck and a gold tiara. Her left arm, which hung at her side, seemed to be made of metal, though it was unlike any prosthetic he had ever seen. Julian put his hands into the air. Please don't hurt me. I just came looking for the curse breaker. The woman paused, and then lowered the sword. You are out of your depth, aren't you? She looked toward the staircase and said, Really, Pot? You thought a little boy was a threat? In answer, the iron pot came walking out of the staircase on three legs. It's a robot? Julian said, amazed. He had never seen an iron robot before, and there was no evidence of where the joints connected to the body. It's a pot. The pot turned a circle on its legs, and the woman brushed it lovingly with a foot. Yes, you're my friend too, Pot, but you're not some dead piece of computer equipment. She turned her attention once again to Julian. So what brings a half-pixie all the way to Laurelie? Julian opened his mouth to respond and then paused. How do you know I'm half-pixie? The woman sheathed her sword. You're not the only one from another planet. But that's more than I care to explain right now. So why are you looking for me? I'm not looking for you. I'm looking for... The curse breaker. That's me. What? 
surprised I'm a woman. I... I thought it was a shield. Oh. The woman crossed the room to the chair and sat down. The pot followed her and settled down next to her, lowering its bottom to the ground like a dog might lay at its owner's feet. She glanced into it. Thanks, pot. Then she extracted a small stool from the pot and set it in front of her. Have a seat. Has that always been... Julian gave up asking questions and sat on the stool. The shield is the tool that helps the curse-breaker. The wielder shares its home until the next person comes along. She spread out her arms, gesturing to the room. Did it really create the whaler's ocean? A great exaggeration. It broke a curse of ice. It didn't create the ocean. I suppose you want your pixie curse lifted. And for my mom. Well, let's see what I can do for you first. That's it? You're not even going to ask me for payment or something? Let's see if I can do it first. Again, she reached into the pot, and this time extracted the shield. It was smaller than Julian had expected, not much more than a foot tall, but his jaw dropped nonetheless. She must have noticed, because she chuckled when she saw his face. Pot is very helpful. We met back on Thua, and I guess they decided to stick around. As if in response, the pot tilted on one of its legs until it touched her, like a cat rubbing its head against someone. She laughed and patted the pot. I love you too, pot. She hefted the shield onto her lap and held it so it faced Julian. For a moment, he felt like he should prepare himself for a bright light or something else to come out of it. Then he noticed the symbol on the shield shifting. In the photograph in the museum, it had been the symbol of night. But as he watched it, the etching changed to the symbol of other magic lords, first that of Auric, Lord of Irony, and then that of Reed, Lord of Wind. I can break the curse. You can, but it would take your magic, too. Julian's heart sank. He imagined not being able to travel on the wind again. It would only take away the affinity you have now. Anyone can learn magic. You could get it back with study and practice. But Julian didn't want to study and practice. He supposed the committee at nights had been right. He didn't have the resilience. Julian shook his head. I can't. It's too much a part of me. A cold wind blasted through the room, though this didn't come from the window, but from the same direction of the staircase. A moment later, someone was hauling Julian to his feet by his ear. Ow! See? I told you I could find him. Julian looked at the two people who stood on either side of him. It was his parents. The lady at the Alhambra said you'd run off. I wasn't worried. The curse-breaker laughed as she returned the shield to the pot, which hadn't so much as twitched at the sudden appearance of Julian's parents. Be thankful your family cares so much about you. Now, do you want to tell me what you're doing all the way out on Larley? Not really. Then I guess we go home. She nodded to the curse-breaker, and then came that terrible sensation of the wind speeding around them, of losing his breath, and Julian and his parents were home again. On the tail end of the wind, he thought he heard the curse-breaker's voice telling him to keep looking, but he might have imagined it. Julian, could you do me a favor? His mother said sweetly as he regained his balance and gasped for breath. Could you please not go transporting yourself anywhere for the next month? Julian felt it more than heard it. A small snap in his spine like he was a doll that someone had straightened. With that request, she had locked down his magic. Julian sighed. Obligations.
You have been listening to The Curse Breaker, a short story written and narrated by Molly Sturgis. Music and sound effects from Pixabay. To learn more about Julian Day and his magical world, follow this Twitch's apprentice on Tumblr. Or follow the links in the show notes.